live and in concert. <laughs> I haven't preached yet, you don't know. <laughs> As I was saying, or trying to, I was, you just couldn't hear me saying it, is whether you're a member, a visitor, a guest, whether you're a saint or a sinner, I am so glad that you're here today with us in this place at this time, particularly because if you were out there, it's a little warm today. In fact, it's a lot warm today. But it's, it, fortunately, it's not the hottest day of the week. I think that was uh, Friday. But still, it's uh, a lot warmer today than I prefer it. But it is good in one sense, because if you don't care for this heat, you may want to make sure that you're right with the Lord. Because... In other places, this is considered the Ice Age. (laughs) Studying for this sermon, I realized just how very, very blessed I really am. Uh, I've endured very little real suffering in my life. In fact, knowing some of the suffering that some of you have gone through and maybe are even going through now, knowing that there are those in other places who have been greatly persecuted for the namesake of Christ, and ultimately knowing from Scripture the ultimate suffering endured by our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the sake of sinners on the cross at Calvary, I'm hesitant and maybe even a little ashamed to call what I've endured suffering. I found this definition of suffering. Suffering is that which is endured in either body, mind, or spirit as a result of that which is distressing, injurious, or painful. That's almost right, but not quite. What it misses is that suffering isn't just endured in either the body, mind, or or spirit, but it's endured in all of them at the same time. Suffering doesn't affect just one aspect of our being. It affects every aspect of our being. Suffering affects the whole person. Now, the little suffering I have experienced, I didn't much like. No one in their right mind enjoys suffering. And I suspect that even those who aren't in their right mind still don't enjoy suffering. I think that the craziest lunatic ever to have lived disliked suffering. There is a certain degree of sanity that suffering brings out in us. Suffering is, by its very definition, painful. And our natural response to pain is to get rid of it, to escape it as quickly and completely as we possibly can. When we hurt, we want the hurting to stop. Now, some mistake suffering as an indicator of the absence of God. In our suffering, we begin to believe that that God has abandoned us. That God has 
left the building. And we're on our own. Either God doesn't know or God doesn't care. But suffering doesn't indicate an absence of God. Suffering reveals the presence of sin. And today we're going to hear Paul's perspective on sin-spawned suffering and the gospel promise of redemptive relief. But before we do that, would you bow your heads and join with me as I pray? Father in heaven, glorious King of creation, provider and sustainer of all that is, Lord God, we lift your name today. And Lord God, we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, help me to speak only your truth today. And Lord God, may that truth be an encouragement to those who belong to Christ Jesus. And Lord God, may that truth be an impetus to those who do not to turn their lives over to Christ Jesus. Father, we ask today that you would help us to see rightly our suffering and to see rightly your promise for restoration. Lord God, we pray that you would be in every aspect of this service today, that you would give me clarity and power in my speech, and that you would use these words, your words, to change lives today. I ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Before I begin, would you let me please read one more time through our scripture text today. If you have your Bibles open, please read along with me. I'll tell you what page it's on, but you don't have my Bible. <laughs> Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Our text today begins at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here, I actually prefer the King James Version, the King James Translation. For I reckon. Now, I don't just prefer that because I'm a southern boy. <laughs> that was a word I heard the entire time I was growing up. Grandpa was always reckoning something. But the reason I prefer it is because consider sounds, at least to me, incomplete. As if something is still 
not quite settled, something is not quite resolved. And reckon, in its right definition, is more emphatic. Reckon means to conclude after calculation. If you reckon someone's debt, you know exactly how much they owe. And that's what Paul's done here. He's considered or reckoned and worked through something. A comparison of the present suffering and of future glory. Paul has done the math. And he's reached an absolute conclusion. The conclusion Paul presents here, he's done the heavy lifting for us, is that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, if you've known suffering, or you've known others that have suffered, or if you consider those who suffered persecutions, that doesn't sound right. Suffering is a heavy load. Suffering is a real burden. Suffering can be very deep and very long. And so it seems like we should certainly be able to compare suffering. But Paul says that. Paul says that suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. And if anyone outside of Christ knows suffering... Paul knows suffering. He says in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In saying that, Paul is describing lasting physical scars. Likely from the abuses he describes in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. There he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That sounds like a guy that knows something about suffering. A lot more than I know about suffering. How many of you have been beaten with 39 lashes? Beaten with rods? Stoned? I don't mean that that way. That just occurred to me that that could be misconstrued. <laughs> I mean, with rocks, intending to kill you. Stoning wasn't a punishment, it was a murder. Now, there are likely Christian martyrs who've suffered worse than Paul. And of course, Jesus' suffering was the greatest suffering of all. Every man, woman, and child suffering rolled into one doesn't equate to the suffering Jesus withstood for our sake. But Paul's suffering does significantly trump mine. 
So I really do want to hear what Paul has to say about suffering. But what I really want Paul to tell me, what I really want him to share with me, is which tool he recommends for eliminating suffering. I just don't want to get through it. I don't want to have it. I don't want to know suffering ever. That's what I want to know from Paul. And I want to know that because I'm a tool guy. I like tools. I have tools I'm not even sure what they do. But I'm really glad I have them. In, in fact, after service today, uh, Linda's brothers and, and she are putting their folks' house on the market. And before they do that, there are two really large, really heavy, probably close to at least 800 pounds apiece, landscaping stones that we're going to evict from their house and move about 100 yards to our home. Now, even though we already had this large steel cart with casters on the bottom, nice size wheels that would probably do the job well in transporting the stones, since deciding that we needed to move them and seeing how large they were, I've bought a 20-foot steel wound cable, a four-ton capacity come-along, a hand-truck-cart combination. It's, it's convertible that will hold up to 800 pounds and a, 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 a truck hitch for my truck. I now have more tools to move the stones than I have stones to move. But that's okay, because I really like tools. So as a tool guy, what I want Paul to suggest to me, what I want to know from Paul, is which tool to use to eliminate suffering. Now when I think of a tool to eliminate suffering, I think of a hammer. Now, I don't mean just any old hammer. I mean a sledgehammer. And I don't just mean any old sledgehammer. I mean a really, really big sledgehammer. I want something with enough heft to it that when I bring it down on suffering, it pulverizes it. It obliterates it. It sends suffering into the abyss. But Paul doesn't reach for a hammer. In fact, Paul doesn't reach for anything that will rid my life or your life or his life of suffering in any way. In response to suffering's scarring pain, Paul sets out a pair of scales. Now, Paul isn't denying or downplaying his suffering. But he says that he's measured their many occasions against God's promise of future glory. And he's come to the conclusion that the difference between the two is so immeasurably disproportionate that they're not even capable of being compared. They are incomparable. We can measure a lot of things. We can measure a thimble of water against the oceans. And we can measure a grain of sand against Mount Everest. But what we can't, says Paul, measure is the sufferings of this present time against the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
He says essentially the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says no matter how long our suffering, no matter how deep our suffering, no matter the sum total of all our suffering, it's not worth comparing with the coming glories to be revealed by God. And though we must wait to see those glories that will be revealed to the children of God, we can see right now that Paul's eyes, Paul's thoughts, and Paul's hearts are fixed in the future and not on the present. Verse 19 tells us, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here Paul blends prophecy and poetry, personifying creation as a spectator, eagerly waiting for Christ's return and the glorious restoration to perfection of all those and all that is His. Now, when reading that creation is waiting with eager longing, here's the picture to have in your mind. Picture a spectator standing on tiptoes with their neck stretched and their eyes fixed on the horizon. They're waiting at a finish line to see who has raced well. And who will receive the prize? That's the kind of metaphor of the faithful that's presented in 1 Timothy 4.7 and 1 Corinthians 9.24. Creation is looking for the arrival at the finish line. God's children. And the reason for creation's eager longing is told to us in verses 20 through 22. Beginning in 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What? There's a lot there. So let's begin here. When Paul says the creation, Paul does not mean all of creation. So, if Paul says the creation, but doesn't mean the whole creation, as he calls it in verse 22, what does he mean? How do we know what he means? Well, because everything other than God the Creator is a part of creation, a quick exegesis of verses 19 through 23 is going to help us exclude what Paul does not mean. Paul doesn't mean angels. The curse of man's sin wasn't applied to them. Nowhere in Scripture do we see God cursing the angels for man's sin. And they weren't accept or subjected to the futility of or corruption of verses 20 and 21. So he's not speaking about angels here. Paul doesn't mean Satan or his demons. They certainly aren't longing for the glorification of God's people. And they won't receive any freedom through it. God has already divinely decreed their eternal suffering. We see that in Matthew 25, 41 and Revelation 20, 10. Neither does he mean the unsaved. Though they are 
like all humanity, cursed by the fall, like the demons, they're not eagerly awaiting the glorification of God's chosen. And they won't find freedom through it either. You see, apart from Christ, they will glorify God as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We find that in verses 9 through 21, or 9, 21 through 22 of Romans. They will glorify God, but the glory of God won't be revealed to them. And he doesn't mean Christians. Believers aren't included here. We can see that because they're spoken of separately in verses 23 through 25. So it's not angels, it's not Satan and the demons, it's not the unsaved, and it's not Christians. Who's Paul talking about when he says the creation? The only aspect of creation remaining is the subhuman aspect. MacArthur calls it the irrational part. And by that, he means the animals, the plants, and the non-living things of creation. Mountains, and oceans, and rivers, and heavenly bodies. But why was it subjected in the way Paul says it was? Nature isn't fallen or sinful. No tree ever broke God's law. No rock ever cursed him. Nature didn't disobey God. So why, when Adam sinned, did God decree that creation should be subjected to destructive repercussions of sin? In Romans 5, 12 through 19, Paul presents Adam the first created human, as the acting representative of all humanity. We call that federalism. And federalism says that when Adam sinned, he sinned on our behalf. Essentially, when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam sinned, you sinned. He was our federal head. His fall was our fall. And here, in these two verses, Paul, with his typical vivid imagery, says that when Adam sinned, even creation was subjected by God to suffer futility and corruption in response to that sin. In Genesis 3.17, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. And Genesis 1.26-28 tells us that when Adam and Eve were created, God gave them dominion over the entirety of creation. David says the same thing in Psalm 8, 5 through 8. Yet you have made him, speaking of mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. As a result, when Adam sinned, and by extension, we sinned, God subjected the whole world, that part of the world that we spoke of and identified, to futility and enslaved it to corruption. Now, affected by sin, nature, the world, is no longer in the same condition 
than it was when God first created it. It has been frustrated in its purposes and no longer operates as God intended it. So consider this. When you watching a nature show and you witness the kill or be killed brutality of nature, or you're prayerfully watching or hopefully not, but maybe experiencing the catastrophe and destruction of natural disasters, consider this. Those things aren't natural at all. Not natural in the sense that God designed and created them to be. That's the new normal, but it's not the created normal. The Old Testament prophets were prolific in their pronouncements of God's judgment on the land. Isaiah, Jeremiah... Listen to this description from Isaiah 24, 1 and 3 through 6. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Verses 3 through 6, The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt." Douglas Moo believes that Paul may have been reflecting on those very words when recording our text in Romans 8, 19 through 22. And it's not just Christians that are aware of this. Secular minds aren't blind to earth's condition either. But the worldview of their philosophers and scientists would have us believe that humans are a plague that we are the highest form of disease, and that the cure for the world's suffering is nothing less than the extinction of all mankind. And in one sense, because our sinful rebellion against God was what first perverted perfection, I can agree to our being accountable for creation's current condition. I can't deny that. Scripture teaches that. But Scripture goes on to argue against humanity's annihilation solving the problem. Romans 8.21 says that the cure for creation's suffering is the return of Christ Jesus and the restoration of God's people. As the first Adam was the source of creation's corruption, so the last Adam, as Christ is called in 1 Corinthians 15.45, and those who belong to Him, that's the solution. Now verse 22 gives us an intense description of creation's suffering. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember, when Paul says the whole creation, he's not speaking about all of creation, but rather the subhuman, irrational components of creation, what we call nature. So Paul is saying that nature has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. You may not know it, but I've experienced the pains of childbirth. No, I didn't give birth. I'm not even pregnant now. <laughs> but my wife gave birth, and I was beside her. 
and I was holding her loving hand. Well, it was loving until the contractions hit. <laughs> and then she crushed it into meal. <laughs> she was so sweet and loving as she was at rest. Our son was too much premature, so she had no medication to, to reduce the pain. In fact, they had flown her by medevac, medical helicopter, to Stanford Hospital in Palo Alto. The, the people there are wonderful. And as she was lying there at rest, she would caress me, share her love with me, and then a contraction would come, and she would squeeze with the power of a vice, curse me, Tell me how rotten and horrible I was. And I was this. <laughs> Make it stop. In fact, when the nurse, it was time for Linda to actually push and deliver this sweet angelic nurse. Leaned over her and said, honey, I need you to sit up now. Linda said, I don't want to sit up. She said, I know, baby, but I need you to sit up. I don't want to sit up. The nurse leaned in closer and whispered, honey, I, I know you're in pain, but I really, really need you to sit up. It'll help so much. My demure, gentle wife grabbed that lady by the lapels and pulled her into her face and said with her best Linda Blair voice, I don't want to get up. Those nurses are nice and they're smart too. She said, honey, you just lay there. <laughs> so I've witnessed childbirth. I don't want to experience it. Not any more than that anyway. But just as it's true with mothers, it's here stated to be also true with nature and creation, that though the groanings described here are indeed sorrowful expressions of present pain, very real pain, they're also, and even more so, groanings filled with the anxious excitement of a pain endured with an expectation of the promise of new life. John 16, 21 describes uh, what the earth is going through as a mother bearing children. In saying until now, Paul acknowledges that suffering and distress are creation's current condition. His intention isn't to presume the, the how or the what or the why of when and how that restoration will occur. His intention is to assure his readers then and now that the restoration promised is coming and it's coming with Jesus. Peter likewise teaches in Acts 3.21 that the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago will not happen until Jesus returns. Both apostles are pointing to the future. A time when all of creation will be restored, returned to its original state. But that time, the moment of Christ's return is a time known only to God. Matthew 24, 36 says, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But whenever it may be, whenever it may come, we know that the second advent and that time of restoration are inseparably linked together. And we know this, that when it comes, 
the day of the Lord, it will be a glorious day. Revelations 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And of course, we read Isaiah's dark and foreboding prophecy of earth's devastation earlier, but he didn't always write foreboding, ominous things. Listen to these words of creation's promised restoration from Isaiah in 11, 6 through 10. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lay down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Looking forward to that day. With verse 23 now, Paul shifts focus. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not only is created nature groaning in anticipation from freedom from sin's devastation, but so are we ourselves. Now let's make something clear. Just as Paul wasn't referencing all of creation in verses 19 through 22, he's not here referencing all people either. As noted earlier, what Paul says in verses 23 through 25, he says to believers. Now, he isn't doing that because he believes that only Christians suffer. We don't need to be a prophet of God to know that in every life, suffering comes. To some degree, in some way, for some it stays long, for some it's shorter. But it comes for everyone. A person's faith or lack of faith doesn't lighten the emotional pain of a loved one's death or diminish the physical pain from a bodily injury. But here Paul is speaking to believers. But even Matthew 5, 45 tells us that God the Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Believer and unbeliever alike enjoy good things in life, and believer and unbeliever alike know bad things in life. 
suffering things in life. But still, Paul does know, and we know, that believers do endure deep and relentless sufferings. The unbelieving world does not, and indeed cannot, know. As we mentioned earlier, some Christians suffer persecution for the glory of Christ. Some Christians watch as their families are tortured and burned and violated and murdered in horrendous ways and can make it stop at any moment by merely denouncing Christ. Non-believers don't fear that persecution. Others may suffer those persecutions in prayer. As we witness those events oceans away, our hearts cry out, Come quickly, Jesus. And we pray for those people as they watch their loved ones suffer and as they suffer themselves, we pray that they would stand strong, that they would stand firm and endure every trial and tribulation of suffering, that Christ's name be exalted. And if we're truly kind, we pray that God, if he would not draw them out of that suffering, that he would draw them home quickly. But all Christians suffer and grieve one thing. The presence of sin in our lives. a crazy thing, but with Christian growth, growth in our understanding of God's Word, and growth in our intimacy with Him through prayer, our grief over perpetual sin doesn't diminish. It actually increases. As we grow more familiar with our sins against God, We are in ever greater degrees of suffering because of it. In one sense, our grieving over remaining sin is a barometer of true conversion. If someone says, for instance, that they're a Christian, but feels no pain or injury over their persistent sins, or lacks an urgency in ridding themselves and mortifying that sin, sincere questions should arise over the validity of their place in Christ. In first drawing us to Christ, the Holy Spirit gave sight to our once blind eyes, and we saw and hated sin for what it really is a violation of God's law, a rebellion against His rightful, sovereign authority, and the most horrendous kind of rejection of His love. Christ sent His Son, Jesus, to bear our sins to suffer and die in our place, so that we might know Him and look forward with eager anticipation to the day of His return, reckoning that when He does, we'll be restored and know Him in perfect bodies and in perfect fellowship. 
God loved us so much that he gave us his son. And what we did as sinners was threw his bloody body back at God's feet. No thanks. I've got this. So if sin doesn't grieve you, you should check yourself. Examine yourself, the scriptures say, to make sure your calling and election is sure. Even now, with increasing clarity, as God's indwelling spirit works to sanctify and mature us, making us ever more like Christ. Those first fruits of the spirit, we should be growing in our hatred of sin, coming to see it and grieve it as the father sees and grieves sin. What we don't do is tolerate. What we don't do is push it under the rug. We ask God to kill it, kill it in us. But ultimately, a believer grieves sin and his own sin the very, very most because we see it as the ultimate cause of Jesus going to the cross. When I think of my sin, I think of the hammer that drove the nails. I think of the nails that pierced the flesh. I think of the spear that pierced his side. I hear the mocking voices, cursing, insulting, denying. And I hear them in my voice because they were my voice. I was the one that drove the spear. I was the one that wielded the hammer. I was the one that steadied the nail. It was my spit. It was my slap. It was my voice. And so I hate sin. May God give me an ever-increasing hatred of my sin. In this way, the sanctification of suffering is a prerequisite to sonship. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Like the word salvation and redemption, Scripture sometimes applies adoption in reference to a gift already received from God, and at other times, as it does in this instance, adoption can mean something that's still awaiting fulfillment, a gift that's still waiting to be given. Besides, to assume that in saying we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, that Paul is saying we're still outside the family of God, we must also assume he's contradicting what he says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7 and in other places as well. In Galatians he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We can have great peace and joy, confident that in this very moment, all those in Christ stand before God 
as sons and daughters. That truth is evidenced by our sealing in the holy and indwelling spirit of God. We've Several of us have preached through that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 of late. If God has sealed us with his spirit, he has sealed us as his sons and as his daughters. But like creation, our full restoration and our inheritance yet awaits the day of the Lord and Christ's return. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 say, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49 echo that. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. Verses 8, 24, and 25 are our final verses. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'm impatiently waiting for patience to wait for it with patience. Patience isn't my strong suit, and it is still definitely an ongoing work of God. But I know that the hope is sure. I know that God will keep his promise, every promise, this promise. And so I wait, and I watch. But I don't, and you shouldn't, just wait patiently. You should wait prepared. Here we see Paul contrast hope with sight as he does with faith in 2 Corinthians 4.18 and 5 through 5.7. And in those verses, almost capturing everything that we've studied today, we see not only that hope for the unseen, but what it is that we wait patiently for. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In conclusion, as we wait in patient hope, Patiently enduring this life's suffering, trials, and tribulations, we can have full confidence as we fix our eyes not on the suffering, but on the promise of Christ's soon return, 
the glorious restoration of God's children and His creation. We're not eagerly awaiting the end times. We're eagerly awaiting the beginning of our eternity. It's going to be an eternity spent in a restored and perfected body. And most beautifully and wonderfully of all, it'll be an eternity spent in the presence of our glorious God and King. But again, even though as we wait patiently, we must also wait prepared. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 reads thus. You're familiar with this most likely. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wives took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Christian, whatever you have suffered, whatever suffering you're enduring today, or whatever suffering may afflict you tomorrow, know that you can believe God's promise and Paul's reckoning that it is but a light and momentary affliction and incomparable to the coming glory of Christ's imminent return and the restoration of all things. What is comparable? What is sadly comparable is the suffering of those who are in Christ and the suffering of those who are not. For those who are in Christ should every moment, every second of every day, from birth to death, be a moment filled with painful sufferings, there will for you come a day of freedom and everlasting joy. A day when God, as it says in Revelation 21.4, wipes away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Suffering, and death, and tragedy, and loss, and pain will have passed away. But for those who aren't in Christ, To the contrary, if every second of your every day is filled with nothing but gladness, happiness, laughter, and pleasures, the day of the Lord is coming for you too. And Revelation 21.8, just four verses beyond what we just read, says this. And on that day for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Eternal death. Eternal suffering. No one here wants you to know that suffering. No one here wants you to leave today without a personal relationship, a redemptive relationship, a rescuing relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't want you to know that suffering either. He took the suffering for you that you might not know it, but that rather you would know eternal joy with him in paradise. So, if you'd like to talk to someone about what the Bible calls the reason for the hope that is in us, I'll be available up here after service. Or you can just find a, a face that Looks glad. After hearing a sermon on suffering, they still look glad. It's probably because they know it's temporal and that Christ's promise is coming. Find me or find them and just ask them, what's this all about? What's this all about? I'd like to hear something more about Jesus. Let me close in prayer now. Father in heaven, good and glorious Lord, we are so grateful that in whatever our circumstance, whether it is pleasurable or painful, whether it is delight or disaster, that, Lord God, for those who know Christ and have been rescued by his atoning death, we can look at this as a light and momentary affliction. A suffering that is but for a moment that will be replaced on the day of your return with an eternity so grand that we don't even remember anything of this life. Father, may that day come soon. May Christ return in his glory. Oh, what a wonder it would be to witness that. But Lord, whether we are here or whether we are already with you, we look forward to the day of restoration, the day when all things will be made new, all things will be made right, all things will be returned to the perfection in which you created them forever and ever and ever. And most of all, Lord, we look forward to that day because in that day we will know you face to face. Father, would you bless everyone here today? Would you make everyone here today to know Jesus? We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.